Hello, everyone. Quote. To put down as clearly as possible the fundamentals of intelligent musical listening is the object of this book. The object of explaining music is no easy one, and I cannot flatter myself that I have succeeded better than any others. But most writers on a music appreciation approach the problem from the standpoint of the educator or the music critic. This is a composer's book. To a composer, listening to music is perfectly natural and a simple process. That's what it should be for others. If there's any explaining to be done, the composer naturally thinks that since he knows what's going on, going into a musical composition, none has a better right to say what the listener ought to get from it. Perhaps the composer is wrong about that. Perhaps the creative artist cannot be so objective in his approach to the music as the more detached educator. But it seems to me that the risk is worth taking, for the composer has something vital at stake. In helping others to hear music more intelligently, he is working towards the spread of a musical culture, which in the end will affect the understanding of his own creations. Still, the question remains, how to go about it? How can the professional composer break down the barrier between himself and the lay listener? What can the composer say to make music more completely the listener's own? This book is an attempt to answer these questions. That was the first of a few snippets from Aaron Copeland's writing. Not his musical writing, obviously, but his, his text, What to Listen for in Music. And um, I think it's pretty obvious that reading the title, you can see connections between that and this podcast um, in the name alone. And I actually, this book, along with a class I, I took with uh, Dr. Charles Morrison, who is a professor at Wilfrid Laurier, really convinced me to, to start this podcast. Because it, in, in experiencing that class, as well as this book, I realized how amazingly complex it, it was to put into words the way that you participate in music. Um, I, I read this book quite a while, no, not that long ago, a couple years ago now. Um, I was lucky enough to get into Orford, the Quinn, or no, actually it was the Octet program at this point. Um, and I read it from Toronto to Montreal. I was on a train. I read almost the whole thing because it's not too big. It's nice. It's like a field manual. You can kind of slog it along with you as I've done the last year or two. And it's been a lot of there's been a lot of valuable things that this has given me. It's it's very much so steeped, fair warning, in the Western art tradition. Uh, so it's orchestrally based. There is some speaking about forms and the orchestra and so on and so forth. But I think for everyone who is a student of music, in one way or another, you can get something from this book. Um, Aaron Copeland has a really interesting way of dumbing things down, I think is how he might put it. Um, but of making saying things simply... Um, that show you how him as a composer approaches the music. Get into some specifics here. Uh, this is the Mentor Trademark publication. Um, it was published in the United States by the New American Library and in Canada by the New American Library of Canada, which is located in Scarborough. And it was renewed, it was originally copyrighted in 1939, and it was recopyrighted in 1967 by Aaron Copeland, who added a couple of new chapters on contemporary music, film music, a uh, long list of recordings um, that you should check out, as well as uh, a reading list. Now, I'm not going to be doing a book review, um, 
partially because I don't think I have any right to review Aaron Copeland's approach to listening to music. Uh, this is going to be a recommendation. I think this is a great book, and I know I've learned a lot from it, so hopefully you can as well. I'm not going to speak too much more here. I'm going to go right into it. The first reading I got, I took from this was from the preface that we heard together. And this next one is also from the preface. Quote, Given the chance, every composer would like to know two very important things about anyone who takes himself seriously as a music lover. He would like to know these two things. One, are you hearing everything that is going on? And two, are you really being sensitive to it? Or to put it differently, one, are you missing anything as far as the notes themselves are concerned? Two, is your reaction a confused one? Or are you quite clarified as to your emotional response? Now, to just tag on here for one second. The first of the second two explanations, are you missing anything as far as the notes themselves are concerned? I think what he means by that, it's a bit of a vague statement, but he does go on to speak about different things that give it some, perhaps, context. I think he's saying the value of the notes regarding the form of the music, the placement in the harmony, rhythm, the the melody, and the color, the tone color that's being used. Is there something in there that that you're missing? And that, I think, is made clear after you've read the whole book and read the ne for the next couple of chapters as he goes on to describe those things. Skipping ahead a little bit, there's nothing infallible about it fallible about a composer's musical instincts. The main difference between him and the lay listener is that he is better prepared to listen. This book, then, is a preparation for listening. And that's all we're going to look at in the preface. But I think that's a pretty good start. He's Aaron Copeland has a very interesting way in here, as I think his music, of, of being succinct. You know, he, this is what we're going to look at. This is why. And we're going to skip the first chapter. I wanted to read, like, this whole book, but frankly, I'm not, I can't read aloud well enough to do that. Um, he gives some preliminaries in the first chapter. We're going to begin in the second chapter. This is going to be a long chunk that we're going to look at here. This is page 18, chapter 2. How we listen. Quote, We all listen to music according to our separate capacities. But for the sake of analysis, the whole listening process may become clearer if we break it up into component parts, so to speak. In a certain sense, we all listen to music on three separate planes, and for lack of better terminology, one might name these. One, the sensuous plane. Two, the expressive plane. Three, the surely musical plane. The only advantage to be gained from mechanically splitting up the listening process into these hypothetical planes is the clearer view to be had of the way in which we listen. The simplest way of listening to music is to listen for the sheer pleasure of the musical sound itself. That is the sensuous plane. It is the plane on which we hear music without thinking, without considering it in any way. One turns on the radio while doing something else and absentmindedly bathes in the sound. A kind of brainless but attractive state of mind is engendered by the mere sound appeal of the music. You may be sitting in a room reading this book, or listening to a podcast, listening to Mark read this book. Imagine one note struck on a piano. Immediately, that one note is enough to change the atmosphere of the room, proving that the sound element in music is a powerful and mysterious agent, which it would be foolish to deride or belittle. 
The surprising thing is that many people who consider themselves qualified music lovers abuse that plane of listening. They go to concerts in order to lose themselves. They use music as consolation or escape. They enter an ideal world where one does not have to think of the realities of everyday life. Of course, they aren't thinking about the music either. Music allows them to leave it, and they go off to a place of dream, dreaming because of and apropos of the music, yet never quite listening to it. Yes, the sound appeal of music is a potent and primitive force, but you must not allow it to usurp a disproportionate share of the interest. The sensuous plane is an important one in music, a very important one, but it does not constitute the whole story. Skipping ahead. The second plane on which music exists is what I have called the expressive one. Here, immediately, we tread on controversial ground. Composers have a way of shying away from any discussion of music's expressive side. Did not Stravinsky himself proclaim that his music was an object, a thing, with a life of its own, and with no other meaning than a purely musical existence? This intransient attitude of Stravinsky's may be due to the fact that so many people have tried to read different meanings into so many pieces. Heaven knows it's difficult enough to say precisely what it is that a piece of music means, to say it definitely. To say it finally, so that everyone is satisfied with the explanation? But that should not lead one to the other extreme of denying, that music the right, of denying music the right to be expressive. My own belief is that all music has an expressive power, some more and some less, but that all music has a certain meaning behind the notes, and that the meaning behind the notes constitutes, after all, what the piece is saying, what the piece is about. The whole problem can be stated quite simply by asking, is there a meaning to music? My answer would be yes. And can you state in so many words what music, what the meaning is? My answer, I'm going to say that again. Can you state in so many words what the meaning is? My answer to that would be no. Therein lies the difficulty. This is a great chapter. Uh, we're going to skip ahead a little bit. But he speaks a little bit. I don't love the way he says it, but I think it's perhaps a to do with the time in which it was written. But he speaks with the layman, simple-minded people um, who basically want a finalized idea of what music is. They want to hear a piece of music be like that's the parade, uh, or that's that's about Dumbo. Um, and he basically thinks that that's a bad idea. And I don't disagree with him per se, but it's my belief that your own experience of music is valid. That's why I made this podcast. And if that's how you want to participate in the sound, it's not a bad thing. But we're we are we bought this book because we wanted to know what Aaron Copeland thought. So I think it's important to continue here and not not put too much time into that. We're on page twenty now. Quote. Still, the whole question remains, how close should the intelligent musical lover wish to come to pinning a definite meaning to any particular work? No closer than general concept, I should say. Music expresses, at different moments, serenity or exuberance, regret or triumph, fury or delight. It expresses each of these moods and many others. Uh, he goes on to say that musicians often like to say that they're that music only has a purely musical meaning. Um, they sometimes go further... I'm going to 
use a direct quote here, they sometimes go further and say that all music has only a purely musical meaning. What they really mean is that no appropriate word can be found to express the music's meaning, and that even if they could, they would not feel the need to find it. Continuing. But whatever the musical professional musician may hold, most musical novices still search for the specific word with which to pin down their musical reactions. That is why we always have find Tchaikovsky easier to understand than Beethoven. In the first place, it is easier to pin a meaning word on Tchaikovsky's pieces than one on Beethoven's. Much easier. Moreover, with the Russian composer, every time you come back to a piece of his, it almost always says the same thing to you, whereas Beethoven, is often quite, it is often quite difficult to put your finger right on what he is saying. And any musician will tell you that that is why Beethoven is a great composer. Because music, which always says the same thing to you, will necessarily soon become dull music. But music whose meaning is slightly different with each hearing has a greater chance of remaining alive. Now, I don't want to call out Mr. Copeland here, but I think that's a little subjective. I think a lot of people love Tchaikovsky and find that his music speaks to them deeply and differently each time. But I think the point is made that for Aaron Copeland, at the very least, he sees in music an enormous value in, in continued experience, being able to listen to a piece of music and and find something new each time. Um, and I think you can do that, especially if you listen as deeply as he does in the ways that he explains. Uh, he, he then goes on to talk a little bit about the well-tempered clavichord by Bach. Uh, and he says, try to put a feeling on one of those. Good luck picking one word. Um, page 21, we're going to continue. Quote, the third plane on which music exists is the sheerly musical plane. Besides the pleasurable sound of music and the expressive feeling that it gives off, music does exist in terms of the notes themselves and of their manipulation. Most listeners are not sufficiently conscious of this third plane. It will be largely the business of this book to make them more aware of the music on this plane. Professional musicians, on the other hand, are, if anything, too conscious of the mere notes themselves they often fall into the error of becoming so engrossed with their arpeggios and staccatos that they forget the deeper aspects of the music that they are performing. But from the layman's standpoint, it is not so much a matter of getting over bad habits on the sheerly musical plane as it is increasing one's awareness of what is going on insofar as the notes are concerned. When the man in the street listens to the notes themselves with any degree of concentration, he most he's most likely to mention most likely to make some mention of the melody. Either he hears a pretty melody, or he does not. And he generally lets it go at that. Rhythm is likely to gain his attention next, particularly if it seems exciting. But harmony and tone color are generally taken for granted. And if they are thought of consciously at all. Sorry, if they are thought of consciously at all. As for the music's having a definite form or some kind, that idea seems never to have occurred to him. It is very important for all of us to become more alive to music on its sheerly musical plane. After all, an actual music material is being used. There's a kind of reverence in the way that Aaron Copeland says that. Continuing. The intelligent music listener must be prepared to increase his awareness of the musical material and what happens to it. 
You must hear the melodies, the rhythms, the harmonies, the tone colors in a more conscious fashion. But above all, he must, in order to follow the line of composer's thought, know something of the principles of musical form. Listening to all of these elements is listening on the surely musical plane. So that's clear. He's very clear as to what he thinks. It is Aaron Copeland's belief that you need to be aware of all of these things. And he goes on to explain how to listen more throughout the book. I'm not going to read everything, but I want to because it's well written. And now I find this approach to be, at least I, I certainly did when I first read it, somewhat concerning. I was like, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I can listen to all these things at once. And, and I mean, what if I don't understand the form? And, and I think the bottom line is being aware is where you need to start. I think that's kind of the point he gets to later on. Now he gives a really great analogy in here end of the chapter um, for music the way he's going to describe it to you and how to participate in it to the theater so in the theater he says that actors and actresses costumes and sets, sounds and movements constitute the centrist plane that makes sense that's what you're taking in, it's giving you all, you know this aesthetic beauty uh, I'm going to read a direct quote about the expressive plane the expressive plane in the theater would be derived from the feeling that you get from what is happening on, on the stage. You are moved to pity, excitement, or gaiety. It is this general feeling generated aside from the particular words being spoken, a certain emotional something which exists on the stage that is analogous to the expressive qualities in music. He claims that the plot and plot development is equivalent to our sheerly musical plane. And the playwright the composer. Audience is the same, of course. Quote. I think this is a good example of the voice of Copeland. It's like he's speaking to you. Quote. It is easy enough to see that the theater goer is never conscious of any of these elements separately. He is aware of them all at the same time. The same is true of the musical listening. We simultaneously and without thinking listen on all three planes. In a sense, the ideal listener is both inside and outside of the music at the same moment, judging it and enjoying it, wishing it would go one way and watching it go another. Almost like the composer at the same moment he composes it, because in order to write his music, the composer must also be inside and outside of his music, carried away by it, and yet coldly critical of it. A subjective and objective attitude is implied in both creating and listening to music. So we've gone through a lot of material already. That was one, two, three, four, five and a half pages. Single-sided, that is. In a very small book, and he has gone through such a wealth of, of how to participate in music. I mean, you can just read that chapter, the sections that we've looked over, listen to a piece of music, and I think feel enriched somewhat, or, or, or inspired maybe is the right word, to, oh, I'm gonna cough here. <coughs> to participate in the musical listening differently. We're gonna move ahead to chapter four. We're gonna do a lot of snippets here. 
And chapter four is the first of the four elements of music. This one subheading would be rhythm. Quote. This is page 31. Quote. Music has four essential elements. Rhythm, melody, harmony, and tone color. These four ingredients are the composer's material. He works with them in the same way that any other artisan works with his material. From the standpoint of the lay listener, they have had only a limited value, for he is seldom conscious of hearing any one of them separately. It is their combined effect, the seemingly inextricable web of sound they form, with which listeners are concerned for the most part. Still, the layman will find that it is well-nigh impossible to have a fuller conception of musical content without in some degree delving into the intricacies of rhythm, melody, harmony, and tone color. A complete understanding of separate elements belongs to the deepest technicians of the art. He goes on uh, for quite a while talking about rhythm and its history, and tribal roots, hunting, war things like that. Uh, I'm going to give a little quote here. I'm not going to read this whole thing, Jager. We're going to talk a little pulse and rhythm now. Um, before we do, same same page, 31. Quote, most historians agree that if music started anywhere, it started within the beating of a rhythm. An unadulterated rhythm is so immediate and direct in its effect upon us that we instinctively feel its primal origins. Uh, he goes, he does a really good job of to someone who maybe has never participated in reading music, uh, describing how to read rhythm, even though he's just writing, which is very impressive to me because music seems like something that's hard to uh, teach through a book. But he seems to do a pretty good job, at least rhythmically. Now, he goes on to talk a lot about rhythm. We're going to continue on page 34 in its relation to pulse. Quote, there is, of course, a much richer conception of rhythm, rhythmic life than that, even as applied to 19th century classics. In order to explain what it is, it is necessary to make clear the distinction between meter and rhythm. Properly understood, there is seldom in art music a rhythmic scheme that is not made up of these two factors, meter and rhythm. To the layman, unfamiliar with musical terminology, any confusion between the two could be avoided by keeping in mind its similar situation in poetry. When we scan a line of verse, we are merely measuring its metrical units, just as we do in music when we divide the notes into evenly distributed note values. In neither case do we have the rhythm of the phrase. Thus, if we recite the following line stressing the regular beats of the metrical line, we get, What is your substance? Whereof are you made? The millions of strange, sorry, uh, the millions of strange shadows on you tend. Excuse me. Not an actor, nor nor really a reader. Allowed, that is. Continuing, reading it thus, we get only its syllable sense, not its rhythmic sense. Rhythm comes only when we read it for its meaning sense. What is the sub what is your substance? Whereof are you made that millions of strange shadows on you tent? One of the many hundreds, perhaps thousands of ways to read that. You'll have to excuse me. Continuing, page 39, getting to the very end of this chapter. Quote, the lay listener is asked to remind, 
remember that even the most complex rhythms are, were meant for his ear. They do not need to be analyzed, analyzed to be enjoyed. All you need to do is relax, letting the rhythm do with you what it will. You already allow just that with simple and familiar rhythms. Later on, by listening more intently and not resisting the rhythmic pull in any way, the greater complexities of modern rhythm and the subtle rhythmic interplay of the magical school will undoubtedly add new interest to your musical listening. I don't know about you, but I find that to be very comforting, and I certainly did when I read it the first time. Because there are some very... I mean, go go, go hear the Laurier Percussion Ensemble. Um, there's some crazy rhythmic things happening that is so hard to conceptualize. You've got multiple meters going on at the same time. It's wild. And uh, Aaron Copeland says, good. It's okay. It doesn't matter. Just let it do what it does. Experience it. And sooner or later, as with most things in life, through education and experience, you'll learn to appreciate it. Getting to the next chapter five on melody. Quote, Melody is only second in importance to rhythm in the musical firmament. As one commenter has pointed out, if the idea of rhythm is a connection to our imagination with physical motion, then the idea of melody is associated with mental emotion. The effect, of, the effect upon us of both these primary elements is equally mysterious. Why a good melody should have the power to move us has thus far denied defied all analysis. We cannot even say with any degree of surety what constitutes a good melody. Talks about the lay ear in relation to melody, and then a bit about the composer's ear relating to melody. And then he goes on to say, a beautiful melody, like a piece of music in its entirety, should be satisfying in its proportions. It must give us a sense of completion and inevitability. To do that, the melodic line will generally be long and flowing, with low and high points of interest in a climactic moment usually near the end. Obviously, such a melody would tend to move about among a variety of notes, according, avoiding unnecessary repetitions. A sensitivity to rhythmic flow is also important in musical construction. Uh, it goes on to say that many melodies don't have that, but most important of all, its expressive qualities must be such as it will arouse an emotional response in the listener. That is the most unpredictable attribute of all, for which no guiding rule exists. So he talks, he likes to give scientific or historical background for basically everything he says, which I think is smart. Um, an interesting way of approaching it. He talks a little bit about physics and the scale and the way that sound interacts with itself on a physical level. Uh, he also talks about scales and 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 things that would be connected deeply to melody. Uh, he goes through the four main systems of his uh, experience being Oriental, Greek, Ecclesiastical, and Modern. A lot of history. There's some examples in here. Um, and he ends off the chapter just about on page 46 in my book saying, quote, Whatever the quality of music line considered, one more time, whatever the quality of the musical line considered alone, the listener must never lose sight of its function in the composition. It should be followed like a continuous thread which leads the listener through a piece from the very beginning to the very end. Always remember that in listening to a piece of music, you must hang on the musical line. It may disappear momentarily, withdrawn by the composer, in order to make its presence more powerfully felt when it reappears. 
but reappear it surely will, for it is impossible, except by rarest exception, to imagine a music old or new, conservative or modern, without melody. Chapter 6 is on harmony. By comparison, with rhythm and melody, harmony is most sophisticated of the three musical elements. We are so accustomed to thinking of music in terms of harmonic music that we are likely to forget how recent an innovation it is by comparison with the other elements. Rhythm and melody came naturally to man, but harmony gradually evolved from what was partially an intellectual conception, no doubt one of the most original conceptions of the human mind. He goes on to talk a little bit about the history of harmony. Um, he talks about organum in the 9th century, descant in the 11th to 12th, and false bass, which came along a little bit later. A uh, little snippet I found useful, really valuable in here was on page 49 for me. Quote, the sounding together of separate tones produces chords. Harmony, considered as a science, is the study of these chords and their relationship among one another. I thought that was a very, again, concise way of putting it. And it's it's almost surgical, some of this book. It's it's not, I don't find it dry, personally. Um, but it's very clear, concise, X, Y, Z, this is the way that this works. And then he goes on with his own voice to maybe describe things in a little bit more um, color. Page 51, quote, Just as a skyscraper has a steel frame below an outer covering of stone and brick, so every well-made piece of music has a solid framework underlying the outer appearance of the musical material. To extract and analyze that implied harmonic skeleton is the work of a technician, but the sensitive listener will undoubtedly know when there is something harmonically lacking, even though he may not be able to give the reason for it. Uh, I think we get another example of his voice here as he's talking about Debussy. This is on page 53. Quote, Debussy, though less radically, radical harmonically than Schoenberg preceding him, is starting less radical than Schoenberg preceded him in start, stating, starting the breakdown of the old system. Debussy, one of the most instinctive musicians who ever lived, was the first composer of our time who dared to make his ear the sole judge of what is good harmonically. With Debussy, analysts found chords that could no longer be explained according to the old harmony. If one had asked Debussy why he used such chords, I'm sure that he would have given the only answer possible. I like it that way. It is as if one composer finally had confidence in his ear. I exaggerate a little, for after all, composers have never had the wait for theoreticians to tell them what or what, what not to do. On the contrary, it has always been the other way around. Theoreticians have explained the logic of composer's thought after he has instinctively put it down. At any rate, what Debussy accomplished was, sweeping, was the sweeping aside of all previously held theories of harmonic science. He worked, his work inaugurated a period of complete harmonic freedom, which has been stumbling block for innumerable listeners ever since. Do excuse me for one moment. Computer's beeping at me. All right, we're good. Uh, he goes on in this chapter to discuss harmony uh, regarding consonance and dissonance and what that means. 
Um, I, I think it's one you got to read. I don't know that me reading it aloud to you is going to do anything. So I think so you got to you got to go read this book, man. I want to read the whole thing, but it's just it's all good. You should you should check it out. Shoot me a message. I'll give you mine. Going into chapter seven, it's the four elements of music once more. The last being tone color, page fifty six. Quote: Tone color in music is that quality of sound produced by a particular medium of musical tone production. That is a formal definition of something which is particularly perfectly familiar to everyone. Just as most mortals know the difference between white and green, so the recognition of the distance differences in tone color is an innate sense with which both most of us are born. It is difficult to imagine a person so tone blind that he cannot tell a bass voice from a soprano, or to put it instrumentally, a tuba from a cello. It is not a question of knowing the names of these voices or the instruments, but simply of recognizing the difference in their tone quality. If both were heard from behind a screen, you would hear the difference. He goes on, again, succinctly putting it, and then giving you a little bit more color as to what he means by that. He goes on to say, uh, quote, don't allow the natural appreciation of a specific instrument he's speaking about to limit your taste for a certain flavor of tone color to the exclusion of all others. Um, saying that they all have value and that even every composer throughout history has had different groupings that he's enjoyed to put together that had different meanings and different implications, subtle as they might be. Page 57. Quote, the intelligent listener should have two main objectives in relation to tone color. A, to sharpen his awareness of the different instruments and their separate tonal characteristics, and B, to gain a better appreciation of the composer's expressive purpose in using any instrument or combination of instruments. He goes on to speak in large part about different combinations of instruments and uh, speaks very, very small amount about different forms um, like the concerto, Constantino, and different examples of tone color that you can explore for yourself and composers that have explored them like Bella Bartok. He goes on to talk about single tone colors. That's the subheading for this next quote. Orchestral instruments are generally taken as a norm, for it is, that it is those that we are most apt to find in the composer's score. Later, we shall want to know how these tone, single tone colors are mixed to form timbers of various instrumental combinations. Uh, he goes on to talk about each of the families of instruments in the orchestra. Strings, winds, brass, percussion. He also talks a little bit about the voice. Um, the organ, how, how these all of these instruments, like especially in the percussion group, have developed over the years. And then he talks about mixed tone colors. So on page 65, quote, Mixing these separate instruments in different combinations is one of the composer's most pleasant occupations. Though there are theoretically a very large number of possible combinations, composers usually confine themselves to a group of instruments that usually that's usage has been made familiar. These may be groupings of instruments belonging to the same family, such as the string quartet, or those of different families, like the flute, cello, and harp. goes on to give a bunch of chamber groups 
for example, the woodwind quintet, the string quartet, and the clarinet quintet, flute quintet, quartet, all these different things. He even talks about a Stravinsky ballet, uh, which is comprised of four pianos and 13 percussion instruments. Continuing on, this is a juicy paragraph. Buckle up, kids. Quote, in listening to the orchestra, it is wise to keep well in mind the four principal sections and their relative importance. Don't become hypnotized by the antics of the kettle drum player, no matter how absorbing they may be. Don't concentrate on the string section alone just because they're seated up front nearest you. Try to free yourself of bad orchestral listening habits. The main thing you can do in listening to the orchestra, aside from enjoying the sheer beauty of the sound itself, is to extricate the principal melodic material from its surrounding and supporting elements. I'll read that sentence one more time because I think it's particularly interesting to get into Aaron Copeland's way of participating in music. The main thing you can do in listening to the orchestra, aside from enjoying the sheer beauty of the sound itself, is to extricate the principal melodic material from its surrounding and supporting elements. Continuing. The melodic line generally passes from one section to another to form one instrument or from or from one instrument to another, and you must always be mentally alert if you expect to be able to follow its peregrinations, that being its movements. The composer helps by carefully balancing his balancing of his instrumental sonorities, and the conductor helps by realizing those balances and adjusting individual conditions to the composer's intentions. But none can be of any help if you are not prepared to disengage the melodic material from its accompanying web of sound. And so he kind of lays it all at your feet here. He says, you have to do this yourself. You have to be educated to experience it. And I I get what he's saying. Uh, he goes on a little bit more to speak about new tone colors. Um, for example, jazz those the wonderful colors that jazz musicians are able to find. And I think that's where we're going to stop. Not that I wouldn't like to continue. But I hope there's something in there for you. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read just the chapters off here so you have an idea what you're getting yourself into with this book. So it's the preface, the acknowledgments, obviously. Chapter one is preliminaries. Chapter two is how we listen. Chapter three, the creative process process in music, which is a really interesting one, especially if you're a creative type and wants to create art in any form. I think it's interesting to see how Aaron Copeland does it or how he approaches it. Chapters four through seven are the elements of music, that being rhythm, melody, harmony, and tone color, respectively. respectively. Eight is musical texture. Nine, musical structure. And then 10 through 14, continue with musical structure which is probably the largest chunk of the book, and very useful for a student music, um, are sectional form, being 10, variation form, 11, fugal form, th 12, sonata form, 13, and free form, 14. Chapter 15, he speaks about opera and music drama. Pretty cool chapter, especially if you do like those arts, the way uh, at least one composer approaches writing for that. Um, and then 16 and 17, which are actually um, added in this new revision in 67, uh, are 16 contemporary music and 17 film music, which he did quite a bit of both. And chapter 18, which could be a whole podcast by itself, is From Composer to Interpreter to Listener.
there's three appendices with a wealth of musical examples. And then there's a list of recorded works that he recommends and suggested bibliography for future reading. For those of you who have kept along here with me, thank you so much for sticking it out. I really like this book, if you can't tell. It's cool because it's pocket-sized. I've had it in my backpack and my open bag a long time. I'll pop it out in rehearsal when I'm not playing or if I'm listening to music on the bus. I find it really interesting for that, that purpose. Um, for those of you who have messaged me about uh, last month being off, I, I appreciate your your interest, and I, I, I just like to say thank you for waiting, everybody. I had auditions and a couple other things coming up, and I just wasn't able to make it work. Moving forward, it, we're hoping to be able to have more interviews, as that is, in my opinion, the most interesting way to speak about music and how people approach it. Not that this book isn't great. Check this book out. If you want to check, if you want to read this book, literally email me. I'll send it to you. Um, I, I've read it a bunch of times, and uh, as long as I get back, I think honestly, I I, I really think it's enormously effective uh, and valuable to anyone who is a student of music, whether that be of the academic persuasion or not. In perceiving how a composer, someone who is who is not only active but successful in Western art music participates in their art and how they how they approach it thank you so much for listening i hope you have a great rest of your week hope you have a great rest of your day and happy listening